Blog Talk Radio. You are listening to the Run to Daylight Football Funcast with your host, Todd Burroughs. My name is Todd Burrows. You can find me on Twitter at Todd from PA. I'm really glad to have a returning hero. Uh, Mike Beers is joining us today. You can find him on Twitter at Beerswater. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Uh, it's good to be here. I'm, I'm happy to be back on the show. Thank you for having me, and I'm excited to talk some best ball. Yep, Mike works um, writes articles for both Roto Grinders and RotoViz. He is a charter of things, former investment analyst, and the 2017 Pros versus Joes champ. That's a pretty big honor, Mike. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's um, uh, it it definitely is weird to have beaten out so many people who know so much more about football than I do. Um, I attribute a lot of it to luck, but. Um, you know, there was certainly yeah, but uh, Andrew you know, Luck, Andrew Luck didn't play. <laughs> yeah, well, you know that helped me in that he wasn't on my team. You know how it is. <laughs> well, you know, look, it's funny. Uh, it, it, it's 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 not luck when you win. It's luck when someone else wins, and it's bad <laughs> luck when someone you know something horrible happens to your team. Right. Well, that, you know, that's great. I mean, it definitely is something that will continue to boost your uh, credibility as uh, you move forward in, in uh, you know, both writing and in podcasting. Yeah, and it, it was, I, I mean, don't get me wrong, I definitely wanted to win it. You know, it was, um, I was tracking it, uh, you know, after the first, few weeks when I saw I was toward the top of the leaderboard, uh, I, I started checking in every week to see how it was going. Um, and uh, it was a tight race, you know, down to the end. It was uh, it was exciting to watch, and, uh, yeah, I'm definitely uh, honored to uh, carry the title as the champion this year. Absolutely. What strategy did you use in the Pros and Joes Challenge, and in general, did you do many of the FFPC drafts? I actually uh, – I only did two, including pros versus Joes, and I had a, a 100% win rate, which um, was uh, was nice. But you know, I mean, maybe I should have played more of them. Um, but in pros versus Joes, you know, my strategy was—I mean, I didn't have a, a real strategy in particular. But one thing I knew going in was that I was overmatched in terms of just football knowledge. You know, um, I wasn't. I wasn't going to find, you know, this, this this year's sleeper before Evan Silva did. So 
uh, I really kind of just stuck to my guns in terms of um, looking for value and building a roster in a way that, um, you know, that was balanced and, and sticking to the principles um, in terms of, you know, how many players I'm going to draft and, and where I'm going to draft them and, and um, just trying to come out with a solid team in the end. And that's really what I think I did. There wasn't really anything special about it, which is weird to say about the winning team, but um, it was just a lot of solid values um, who fortunately didn't get injured, uh, at least until the very end. And, um, and you know, they, they came through for me. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's really good. I, I love the FFPC. I love the 28 rounds. Uh, you know, it, it's a full PPR with the tight end getting 1.5. And, you know, that really doesn't throw you off much. Like, I didn't do too many. I know you do a lot of the draft. Um, you know, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's tied into, the, into Roto-Grinders. And, you know, I didn't do that because I felt like half PPR would throw me off. But it, it's not much of a, a, a twist for me to do just, you know, one position, one and a half points. You just move your tight ends up the board, you know, a certain amount. But I, I really like the 28 rounds. I don't mind the kickers. And I think that, you know, for someone like you who does a lot of charting, I think the more rounds probably plays in your favor. Yeah. Um, no, I like it, too. It's... Um... You know, like you said, I, I don't mind the kickers either. You know, it's kind of I, I, the way I feel about it is, um, you know, we've got these eight more rounds than an MFL ten, um, and then we got the kicker position. So I'm going to use three or four spots on kickers. So cool, I have uh, you know four or five extra spots for other positions, and I, I mostly fill it up with uh, wide receivers. That's kind of my approach there. Um, I really like to get my running backs in the top half of the draft, whether it's NFL pen or, or FFPC or draft or whatever, and look for those uh, big play guys, the wide receiver toward the end of the draft. Um, and that's well, def- really, you know, go ahead. Yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, but definitely going heavy wide uh, running back early has been a really good strategy the last two years in hindsight. Yeah. Um, and it you know it just kind of it just kind of fell that way you know it's not something i really set out to do this year um a couple of years ago uh you know with the hyper fragile thing uh i was definitely doing it intentionally but uh it just seemed well, that's a it different seemed to work out that way for me yeah i mean exactly. that's a different animal completely but um and for those who might not know hyper fragile is when you take three, you know, it falls to you that three great running backs are your first three picks, and then you don't take another running back the whole draft, and what makes it hyper-fragile is obviously those running backs have to stay healthy. But if they do and they're good running backs because you drafted them early, you load up on other positions, and it's a very interesting – I haven't done a pure hyper-fragile. I've done four running backs. Um, mm-hmm. but I, I haven't done a pure hyper yet. I guess it's just too far out of this old man's uh, yeah, you chickened out, wheelhouse. <laughs> to, you know, but I'm not, I'm not opposed to it. It just, you know, I don't tend to chase strategies, but if I got three running backs, boom, 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 that I really loved, I, 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 I think it's a brilliant idea. 
Uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, and uh, it really it did work out well in uh, in 2016. It wasn't really the right environment for it this year, um, but uh, yeah, I, I was really happy with the results there. Overall, how were your results in fantasy football in 2017? Uh, they were pretty good. You know, uh, best ball uh, went relatively well. Um, you know the I mentioned the FFPC leagues uh, worked out, uh, but I only played the two. Uh, I actually was down on draft um, about 20% in, in best ball leagues, which was unfortunate. Um, I had a I was drafting a lot of Spencer Ware there, which was uh, really bit me. Um, but uh, you know, I was up about 40. You needed to stack up him with. Uh, you needed to stack up him with Hunt. Yeah, apparently. Um, yeah, unfortunately I didn't have very much hunt anywhere, but, um, you know, I really wanted hunt, uh, after the wear news, I mean, obviously everybody bumped him way up their boards, but I was ready to take him in the first round. Um, but I just didn't, you know, I didn't do a lot of drafts after that point. Uh, Um, I didn't have a lot of exposure, but, uh, you know, having uh, the, the guy in Andy Reid's offense is always a nice thing. I agree completely. I came up with the, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't call it claim to fame because it didn't get nearly the uh, output that your hyperfragile did, but I coined the term stack cuffing, and it describes a situation where a guy like Ware, you know, because of Hunt, fell to the sixth, seventh round where he was a super value, and if you get him and he's a super value, why not take a chance on Hunt in the 10th or 11th where, you know, kind of uh, it was based on kind to trying to kind of recreate the Coleman and Freeman situation from the year before, where if you had both of them, you did really well. I would never draft Freeman. In fact, I had almost no Freeman anyway, um, but I would never take, you know, like um, a Murray and a Henry. You know, uh, that's too much draft equity. But what I what makes stack cuffing interesting is, you know, again, if you get, a, a, like, a great value on the first guy, you take the second guy when, you know, and, and because if it's a two-third, one-third split, where in the sixth or seventh and hunt in the tenth or eleventh, you know, even without injury, you know, it, it could pay off really nicely. But if you do get an injury, it could, it could crush. Um, that's kind of the theory. Any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, well, I wanted to ask you a little bit about this. Uh, you know, I, I listened to you talking about it on the past um, podcast, and you know, I know you, you wrote it up as well. Uh, I'm just so what makes it different from you know, just handcuffing? Uh, I mean, I, like it sounds like there there are some key differences, um, but uh, I'm not totally clear on it because it seemed to me like hunt hunt and wear together would have been like a hand, like, I would have considered that a handcuff. Um, well. But you're, you're, you clearly got have a different angle here. Well, you know, traditional handcuffing, what you're hoping for, you know, in the old days, back when running backs would get three, 350 carries and there'd be seven to ten of them in the league, if one of them went down, their, their backup tended to get that workload, right? So that's a right. traditional handcuff, you know, or, you know, where – you're only going to get value out of the second guy if the first guy gets hurt. What stack cuffing is, 
is it's trying to it's taking two guys who happen to be on the same team that are both values at their draft position. In other okay, words, so the difference the difference being you expect both to produce um regardless. Yeah, I'm not drafting them hoping for an injury. I'm drafting them because I think, you know, let's say Ware and Hunt Ware hadn't gotten hurt. Well, maybe one right. week Ware would score 18 points and Hunt three, and the next week it would be the other way around, kind of like how Freeman and Coleman were the year before. You're, you, what you're doing is, you know, it only works with two backs. I don't try it with three backs. That's too much draft equity. But my feeling mm-hmm. is if you, get, if you find those two guys who are, you know, one of them's going to be the two-third, the other one's going to be the one-third, you don't know which – but because of the uncertainty, they're, you know, where was the fourth-round pick before, third or fourth-round pick before Hunt got drafted, right? Now you get him in the sixth, seventh round. You know, think about it. Would you trade a seventh and a tenth for a third or, or you know, a, a late third or early fourth? You'd, you'd make that trade every day, right? Sure, sure. So, so that, that's essentially what I'm doing is I'm trying to secure that fourth-round value um, and then, if, and then, if there is an injury, well, then you know, yeah, it, it crushes. But the difference is that old stack, uh, old handcuffing is dead. It doesn't. It didn't make sense that much even back then because it was such a crapshoot. Um, but th- that's to me what makes it a little different. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Um, yeah, uh, it, it might not be a, a tremendous concept when you have to explain it to smart people three times, but anyway, <laughs> that's and and I certainly well, to be fair, that was I the first time you explained it to me. So. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what's funny is that you know I, you know I and certain like after I came up with it, I had people uh, uh, adding me on Twitter saying I love that concept. I'm going to go into my draft and do it, and I'm like no. You know, it's definitely not something you go into a draft looking to do. It, it kind of kicks in for me when I get the first guy at a really good value, right? If I, if, yeah, I, if I had to yeah. take Ware in the fifth round, I'm not going to spend a ninth on Hunt. But, you know, if I have Ware as a late fifth, early sixth value, and I get him late sixth or even sometimes you could get him in the seventh, I felt like taking Hunt in the tenth or eleventh if he was still there you know, I secured one of, it's kind of like hyper fragile in a sense where you're locking up one of those spots that you need at running back every week. You know, I know that between them every week, I'm going to get most likely one of those two is going to score a score that's going to be good for me. And it's, I'm not giving up a ton of draft equity to do it. I hope that helps uh, explain it a little more, but definitely if you're out there, don't go into a draft saying I'm going to stack up this draft. No, it, it's one of those things that you want to, you know, once I get the one guy and then the other guy happens to be there where I also have him at a value, that's when I do it. Yeah, that makes sense. And that, and that, that, that sentiment is totally true of a lot of things. Like, you know, any strategy I have, um, I don't, I don't go into any draft thinking like, this is what I'm going to do. It's all about how that draft plays out and who falls to you. And, um, you know, in, and you, adapt from there right it's not um i wouldn't go in with a blueprint of pick by pick exactly what i'm going to do even though i spent so much time looking at 
things like roster construction and, and where I want to pick players, it's it's all going to change depending on what the other 11 people in your league do. Well, well the key thing to remember in, with any strategy, you know, it's like I always tell people, never drop a tier in your rankings to try any strategy. Like I laid mm-hmm. out my four things that I want to do in, in best ball drafts, you know, stack a quarterback with his receiver, be careful with bye weeks, um, you know, and, and risk tolerance is the third thing. But none of those things I'm going to pat, you know, I'm not going to ever drop a tear to do that. And I think that's the same kind of thing you're saying is the strategy kind of picks itself based on what's available for you as you're doing the draft, correct? Right. The, the way I like to think about it is um, – I sort of have a, a toolkit or, or a, a roadmap of, of different strategies or ways to go. And, um, you know, after five or six rounds, then I'll know which one I'm going to follow or which one I'm going to use. Um, and that's, you know, so I want to be prepared for however the draft is going to go and be able to build a, good, a winning team, uh, you know, accordingly. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, if you try to dictate the draft yourself, it's just not going to work. You can't control the other 11 people in your league. Right. And, you know, the, the other key thing to keep in mind is all these advantages, like we'll get into your article on the best, you know, best roster constructions and uh, who won best ball leagues. We'll get into your recent article on, on that. But I always say, you know, I'm not going to go out and draft one quarterback or four quarterbacks, but I'm not going to go into a draft saying this is a two QB draft, this is a three QB draft, or this is a I'm a two tight end guy. I'll never draft three tight ends. You know, I I think as long as you're in that general, I always compare it now to like if you let a dog out in the backyard with an electric fence, you don't care where within the fence he is as long as he's in your yard. I want to know what the optimal roster constructions are, but most of the differences that we find in these charts you do every year, at best it's like a 1% difference between, you know, this construction and that construction. So for me, I'll never want to take a guy I have rated as a lower player. Typically there's like, you know, I mean, none of us is good enough that we have guys rated I'm not saying this right, but my point is you tend to have players in a group, right? There's five guys you like about the same. And then there's five guys that you like less. I'm never going to go and dip into that less group to chase a strategy. That's the point I'm trying to make. Yeah, that makes sense. And and to what you said about the, you know, the differences in um, for roster construction and and win rates being like 1% or less in a lot of cases, you're absolutely right. And, um, you know, it's really where it matters is not like for tight ends. It's not two versus three, but it's when you go with two versus three that can really sort of screw up your draft. Um, you know, if you, well, what do you, you wait, explain that further? That, that, that's a great point. I, uh, explain that further. So, you know, there are, there are times or there are drafts where, going with two tight ends clearly is better than going with three tight ends and, and the reverse. And the, and when that is, 
you know, say you wait until the 15th round to get your tight end. You just found all this value at wide receiver and running back and even quarterback up until that point. That is not the time to go with two tight ends. No, that's Uh, a great point. Right. So, you know, you're going to have two weaker guys um, and you really should add a third one to, you know, because you're going to have gaps. You just, those aren't going to be great players. There are going to be plenty of weeks where they both have a bad game. But, you know, in a draft where you, you know, you took Gronk within this first or second round and then, you know, if you also, you know, a few rounds later um, took someone like Delaney Walker, you shouldn't be burning another pick on tight end. That's sort of my perspective. So that, like, that I agree. is the time to go with two. I agree with that 100%. That's a great point and something we all need to keep in mind. Like, I go into most drafts saying I'm a two-quarterback guy. Because it's such a stable position, um, I mean, we did see some more injuries this week. But on a week-to-week basis, we all know that the, you know, the, the, the line between quarterbacks is less, you know, there's much less of a drop-off, let's say, between the 18th quarterback and the 20th, uh, 15th quarterback and the 18th quarterback than the 15th running back and the 18th running back or wide receiver or tight end. Uh, it's a much more flat position, QB scoring is. So I'm mm-hmm. I'm a two-QB guy. But in drafts where I take an earlier quarterback like a Wilson, I, I had a lot of in the seventh or eighth round, it, uh, I have a, a group of guys I want to take with my second pick. If I don't get one of them, well, that's when I'm going to take three quarterbacks because that's a weak position now. I don't want to have a you know I'm not gonna I, w- I didn't want to just have Russell Wilson and even though he ended up having a good year Alex Smith um, you know right. that's when I that's when I would draft the third quarterback if I but if I drafted Ben Roethlisberger in the tenth and Matthew Stafford in the eleventh I was done at quarterback it's it's very similar to what you were saying I think. Right, yeah, it's, it's it's keeping tabs on the the relative strength you have of the position, right? I mean, it, and and the, I mean, as a proxy for the strength, you know, it's what round you got them in is a pretty easy way to keep track of it. You know, you don't want to spend too much at the position, but you you can't go too light either. And um, you know, you end up. I mean, I think the best rosters end up balanced across the positions, sort of the amount of draft capital they've spent. Um, and or maybe not um or they're similar to each other right like there are a lot of different ways to build a good roster but they'll all have a similar balance of amount of draft equity position that makes a ton of sense and i i feel like you're also saying that if you get later in the draft and you feel your team is pretty balanced and you have an extra pick nine out of ten times, you're probably going to use that extra pick on a wide receiver. Yes. Um, a couple of reasons for that. Um, one being, I mean, I already mentioned that um, they just tend to have more of those big weeks. You know, they're they're more volatile players. If you just look at, um, you know, their, their profiles, their uh, weekly fantasy points. But then also I've found, you know, looking at this win rate stuff, if you're deep, you know, in the fifth, 15th round or later running backs with uh, you know above average win rates are 
almost non-existent. I mean, there's like one or at most two guys per year. And there are, you know, 20 guys who are, who have ADPs in that range, at least, you know, more than 20. So you're really throwing darts. Um, And I don't like to waste those picks. Um, You know, there are guys there who can, who can give you points. Yeah. Which is also why your strategy tends to be to go a little heavier running back earlier because you feel you can get those wide receivers late. I mean, it was just like taking candy from a baby, taking guys like Funches and Sanu um, late. Now, of course, Funches, we didn't know that Benjamin was going to get traded, but there's two types of wide receivers I tend to find in those areas. And again, depending on the types of wide receiver I've taken up until that point will depend my interest, but you know, like I had a ton of Kenny Stills in the 13th and 14th round. He's a perfect best ball guy because he's a big play guy. Yep. And he's a great late wide receiver. But so is Sanu. If I've got a lot of um, – if I've got more risk at wide receiver, like if I had taken a Martavis Bryant or, you know, some of those more boom-bust types early – then a guy like Sanu, who was a, a you know a locked-in number two on a good offense, you know he ended up paying off I think tenth-round value, and you would get him in the fifteenth, sixteenth. You know those guys are there regularly, and you know this is my third year, and there's always seems to be some pretty darn good wide receiver choices late this year. There was uh, Chris Hogan was there. And, you know, there was, there was uh, Paul Richardson was there even later. There always seems to be, you know, that second or third wide receiver uh, on teams that people just don't value enough, correct? Yeah, uh, no, I agree with you. And a lot of times, I mean, something that sort of gives away or, or can clue you into who those guys are is the, is the quarterback. Um you know, like you mentioned, Richardson, uh, you had Russell Wilson was was pretty high in everybody's rankings, but you only had one wide receiver, Baldwin, um, who was getting any, you know, sort of respect uh, in terms of ADP or his price. Um, you and know, he was with, being uh, over Atlanta. Um, well, yeah, it's a different, different story. But, um, <laughs> you know, Atlanta, again, you had – um, uh, you know, Matt Ryan, he's another guy who's being overdrafted, but you know, people expected things from Matt Ryan again, and you only had one wide receiver on that team with a premium price, right? And Sanu was way down in, in the teams, like you said, and somebody's going to catch those balls. Um, and you know, if if you can find that kind of volume for cheap, I mean, more more touches just means more chances to score, and you know, you're, I mean. If you're getting touchdowns out of your guys uh, that deep in the draft, that's a huge boon to your team. Absolutely. Great points, Mike. Uh, What was your biggest takeaways from this best ball season? Anything new that you kind of, you know, the light bulb went on about? Um, You know, unfortunately, I kind of learned the same lesson a second year in a row because I I didn't learn it the first year. (laughs) What was that? which was, um, you know, don't concentrate in anybody uh, too much of your portfolio in anybody from, you know, the earlier part of the draft. Um, 
you know, I had I mentioned where I mean he got a little cheaper. Uh, you know, I bought him mostly when he had dropped to you know fifth or sixth round, but I was buying him earlier too because I just really liked that offense. Yeah, I was player. And uh, so I ended up with a ton of him, and um, and it, it really cost me. And um, you know, I really think in the early rounds, you know, sort of first through fourth round, I don't want to have you know more than twenty percent in a guy like that. I mean, two years ago, it was, um, I think it was Jamal Charles that killed me. Um, and you know, this year it was where, and, um, you know, I, I get, I just got to pay more attention to it. You know, you kind of fall in love with a guy, um, you know, and, and he's and, always uh, there when you think he's the value. Right. Exactly. You, you know, know, other you, people that... are overlooking him for whatever reason, and he's just he's there. You know, you've already made you know three or four picks that you like, and he's just there. And you, you know, I attack him right on the roster, and 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 I don't think he was a bad pick any of the times I picked him, but I did it so many times, and then something bad happened. Because um, it's the and NFL, it, but, and injuries happen. Exactly, and you know, you you can't anticipate that, and. At, in that part of the draft, you know, those first few rounds, it's just so costly, you know, and it, it's a really big risk. And, um, you know, had he stayed healthy, I, you know, that would have been great, but, uh, you know, it wasn't worth the risk that I was taking, and I kind of let it get away from me. So, you know, I yeah. kind of – I got to remember that for the next season. Uh, <laughs> I'll, try I'll try and remind you, buddy. I'll try and remind you. You know, what's what's interesting for me was last year I put a lot of energy into exposure, and I, I, I didn't have a great year. This year I decided, you know, and I've talked about the things that I, I worked on, um, I didn't, the only two things I did with exposure is after about a third of the way, a quarter to a third of the way through, I had way too much Zach Ertz and way too much Todd Gurley. So I cut both of them down. Now, hindsight being 2020, I would have had even a better year if I hadn't have done right. that. But the point is, it also could have led to disaster. I did have plenty of players who I had pretty heavy exposure to. Like my number one first-round pick was uh, exposure was Odell Beckham. But I only had him in 20 of 149 drafts. And what was interesting is once I tweaked that Ertz, because at one point I was 35, 40% on Ertz. And then his, his, you know, he started not showing up where I, I liked him as much too. That's the other factor that helps you. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of times you might like love a guy in the eighth round, and now he's going in the sixth round and you don't love him as much. But I didn't have more than 23% ownership on anyone other than the defense. And, and I thought that was pretty crazy. And at one point it worried me a little bit. But even though I had a lot of injuries, um, you know, it didn't stop me from having a good season. Yeah, and I don't think you have to make really big bets on particular players um, in order to win. If you if – you, um, you know, if you're playing a lot of them, a lot of leagues, which you clearly did, and you're consistently making value picks, like you know, if um, you know, getting guys below their ADP, you know, your average, keeping your average cost of a player lower than um, everyone else across these leagues, 
um, you're just putting yourself in a position to win, even if you're even if you don't have you know an excessive amount of Gurley or uh, or an excessive amount of Le'Veon Bell. You know, it it you don't need that to have a good year. You might well, need and that to I, have like a massive year, you know. But uh, but you know, to to make a nice return on your portfolio, you don't need to make those big bets. Yeah, you could also have a massively horrible year. Uh, as well, right. because yeah, we're, the, we're, we're, we're all that's incredibly smart until we're not, right? Right. Um, you know, so that's why all the more, like, I, I talk about tears and, you know, really kind of sticking to mixing it up within your tears. Like, I might have liked, you know, like, I liked Ingram, too. I didn't draft much Ingram. But I liked I liked Ware, and I liked Hyde, and I liked Ingram. And I had a decent amount of each of them, and then all of a sudden they weren't third and fourth round picks anymore. They were sixth, seventh, and eighth round. So I just, you know, I just continued to cycle between them. And I think that's 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 the way to kind of overcome that is to find other people you like almost as much, and to spread out your exposure that way. You don't want to take someone you don't like at all, but. You know, typically in an area, there there should be three to five guys that you like pretty well, and then what draft? You know, because of you know your draft position being mixed up every draft as well, between those two factors, you do seem to be able to spread your exposure. Yeah, and if you end up, I mean, in in the case where you have you know five guys who you like or three guys who you like pretty similarly, you just take the one who falls the farthest. Um, in your given draft, right? And it won't be the same guy every time. And then you end up diversified and you end up with that with that lower average cost or that, that more value across your portfolio. And it's a really great way to go. Yep. And and then again, also, if that's another reason I liked starting early last year. It was my first year doing, you know, the February drafts. And it just helps you all the more to, to split up your portfolio because of the value on players can change a tremendous amount. I mean, like a a guy that I was not crazy about was Rex Burkhead. He went to New England, and all of a sudden he was going in the sixth, seventh round. And I'm like, there's no way I'm paying sixth, seventh round price for Rex Burkhead, right? I mean, he was okay in Cincinnati, but I I just was, you know, and I know it's, but, you know, people get excited because it's New England, but it's exactly because it's New England and then all of a sudden, Lee gets signed, and now he's the sixth, seventh-round guy, and Burkhead right. dropped all the way back to the 15th. But that didn't happen overnight. It happened over the course of, let's say, a month. Well, all of a sudden, I'm like, well, you know, hmm, this Burkhead guy has just as good of, you know, overall, the it's, it's a tougher situation to draft, but if I'm going to draft someone, it's going to be Burkhead. And, I, and he ended up being one of my top 10 to 15 guys. Not that I thought he was the best player in the NFL, but in the 15th round, 16th round, I mean, sometimes even 17th round, you know, and that's where I think, people, you know, one of my key focuses that people don't talk enough about is opportunity in best ball and, you know, playing the odds you can get those late round guys who can really add value to your best ball team. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, 
And I think you played it exactly right. I mean, in terms of, um, I think in general, the strategy with New England running backs uh, is just buy the one that's cheapest. And the nice thing about them is um, that that seems to change every offseason, which, you know, who who everybody likes the most. It certainly happened this year. But, um, you know, you, it was almost like arbitrage, uh, you know, Gillisley, um, you know, fading him when he was up in the, that round and, and buying Burkhead when he was low and doing the opposite. Um, you know, well, you're, it's like Gillis, the stock market. Kind of you're playing move, against, but, yeah. You're, you're playing against other people's enthusiasm and you're hoping right. it's over enthusiasm. You know, sometimes you're going to be wrong and, you know, and if Gillisley won the job and was the only guy and killed it, um, you know, then I would have been licking my wounds, but, in general, that's like a situation I would never want to stack huff because you can't, you know, you only have two hands, so I can't grab four running backs with two hands. Um, right. And, 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 you know, so that's a situation where I am more likely to just, if I'm going to take a chance, I'm going to take it late. Yeah, exactly. I and mean, that, that's the key thing. I mean, if you had been wrong about it, the cost would have been that 15th round pick, right? It w- you wouldn't have been wrong with your sixth or seventh or fifth round pick. And that, that and that's, you can get by without that guy, without that, that value on your team. Yeah. And, and it, I think it's pretty fair to say that very few new England running backs end up having historically first round value. I might, Gillisley's upside was probably sec, late second, early third round value. That was like his ceiling in that offense, right? Like if everything went right. So mm-hmm. I'm losing the, the opportunity to gain those three or four rounds, but the chances of that happening versus the chances of him being equal to the value in the sixth round or him being a tenth round value or, a, or no value at all, that's the kind of equation you have to do in your head when you're thinking about the opportunity and, and not chasing that guy who's the, you know, the pretty butterfly, you know, and that's where, you know, opportunity and who else is on the roster, you really have to think these things through. And that's what I mean when I say roster and construction is important, but I'm going to spend 80% of my time thinking about players and their situations. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. I mean, I'm um, I'm as big a, a perhaps the biggest roster construction, um, you know, uh, guru. You're frankly, you're a guru um, out there. But you know, the fact is, uh, the players drive the drive your team. And the thing about roster construction is, they're like you. You can easily cripple your team with bad roster construction. But you're not going to win a league with good roster construction. Exactly. You know that, that's kind of how I look at it. You know, you exactly. uh, you just you be smart about how you build the roster, and if you make good picks, you're in a position to win. Uh, but you still have to make good picks. <laughs> like that's the bottom you know, line. I, you still have to another, get good players. Another analogy could be like, you know, you can drive a car and think about other things, right? And mm-hmm. that doesn't mean you're driving poorly. Roster construction is like driving a car. You, you need to know how to do it, and you need to be able to react when things happen, but that doesn't mean you have to be thinking about driving while you're driving. You're thinking about whatever else might make your life better. 
that's kind of another analogy I could use. I, I, I want to drive within the lanes. I want to drive safely with roster construction, but I don't want to spend so much of my focus on that that nothing else gets accomplished. Yeah, I think I think that makes sense. Yeah. So, um, what you know, you mentioned where as a as a big miss, but who were your biggest hits and any other misses on players for you this year? Um, some so bigger hits for me would oh, one of the biggest ones was Adam Thielen. Um, and I wish I had um, – I, I was really high on him sort of from the start. Um, and by really high, I mean, like, um, I thought his price was way too low. It was in the teens sort of when, um, you know, the uh, MFLs opened up. And uh, he had just had a great year. It didn't make any sense to me at all. Uh, you know, I, I know Diggs was, was banged up last year and he was supposed to come back strong and everything. But um, – he the problem was I was I was buying him up in my early drafts and then other people seemed to catch on and he got more expensive and moved up you know like a handful of rounds so quite a bit um, over the course of the summer and I stopped buying for that reason and I wish I hadn't you know because obviously he ended up having an even better year than anyone could have hoped um, but that that one I definitely chalk up as a win um, I think. Um, you know, I I did have a decent amount of um, I did have a decent amount of girly. I had um, you know just banking on the volume, ho- hoping that would uh, turn into something good. And then um, I was buying Melvin Gordon as well, and that worked out. Um, you know, before injuries put him a little bit, but for uh, most of the year he was a, he was a strong running back to have on your roster. Um, a miss for me. Um, was DeMarco Murray. I, it's funny. I actually I took him before Gurley in the pros versus Joes draft, uh, which is just funny to me in retrospect. But I, he was my second-round pick, and Gurley was my third-round pick. Um, I had a lot of DeMarco. Um, and, I, and that was kind of like a theme for me I just noticed this past season was I was doing a lot of buying the, like, the 1A guy um, in terms of running back. So, um, you know, the guy who everyone thought was going to be overtaken by somebody. So I, I had a lot of DeMarco, uh, which obviously didn't work. Um, and then I had a lot of Ingram, which uh, turned out great. Uh, so that, you know, that was another one of the winners. Um, but, and then we mentioned where, you know, who, you know, there were concerns about him, you know, losing work to hunt um, before the injury, obviously. And, um, uh, so I, you know, I was piling up guys like that. Um, and Jonathan Stewart was another guy I had a lot of. You know, I, I'm not sure whether he counts as a win or not. He stayed on the field most of the year, but um, scored a few touchdowns. The running offense cheap. wasn't good this year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, all I, uh, you know, him and and Forte both. Um, Forte's another guy where I was just buying. I had a lot starter. of Forte. Yeah, and it, you know we didn't get a lot out of those two, but we got something, and and they were he had they a couple good weeks. Yep. so low. Yeah, exactly, and that, that's kind of what, you know what you were looking for. It was um, they were cheap, they were going to touch the ball a bunch, and you know guys who can fall into the end zone, and that late in the draft, um, that's really all you're looking for. Um, yeah, them but, drafting you know, McGuire, you know that 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 took me off Forte some, and it certainly hurt his. 
Um, I want to I want to get to one guy you mentioned, which you know I think it's an important thing, is Demarco Murray, and I I think, and this the phenomenon to watch out for is, the guy who helped you you win leagues the year before a lot of times is the guy who will cause you to lose leagues the next year. And what I mean by that is what made Murray such a great pick was he was an older back. He had some issues. Henry was there, but he was the fifth round pick in 2016, right? right? Was it? So that's, that's why, you know, so I had almost no Murray because all those factors that made him a fifth round pick in the year before people were completely overlooking and drafting him in the second round. Right, as if none of those bad things could happen because they didn't happen the year before, and so that's just something I think you have to be aware of when you're drafting. Is where was this player drafted last year? Why was he drafted? You know, and again, really looking through the opportunity and saying to yourself, okay, here's a 30-year-old back, and you know he could lose more work to Henry. He could get hurt. He's been hurt before. You know, none of those things happened the year before, but he wasn't a second-round pick. Um, and I'm not trying to pick on you because we all do it, but it is an example of a phenomenon to look out for, I think. Yeah, no, and that, that makes perfect sense. I think it's, um, you know, what looking at why the player's price has changed, right, is, is, a, really, um, is, is a really good exercise to do it. And you're exactly right about Murray. I mean, the... Um, he had another year, or he had a great year, right? Like, you know, a lot of the concerns were proven wrong, but this, those concerns were concerns that are actually worse a year later. You know, like he's one year older. He's got, you know, it was a great season, but it was, a, you know, he's got another season under his belt. Um, you know, he's a heir apparent Henry, you know, had another year of experience, which was not a bad thing for him because he's younger. Um, you know, the, the, the risks were actually even higher this year, but the price is higher as well. And I did, and, I did, and, um, yep. And, and the fact is though, <clears throat> from a, you know, guessing right, wrong thing. I mean, Mike Malarkey did everything humanly possible to make Murray worth that second round pick this year. Um, it, you know, but it, it just didn't happen because he did get dinged up. So, you know, I don't think that, you know, there was a chance you could have been right. But again, in that second round, I think more than any of the second round, you tend to find two types of guys, people who overperformed the year before and people who underperformed the year before. And, and, and I, I, that's something that we'll talk a little bit more about later, but I, I think the second round is really the linchpin round of the draft because the first round pretty much writes itself you really don't have too much options um, in the first round. It's very rare you see, you know, someone other than who you expect to be picked in the in the first round. Uh, but right. the second round guys really tend to be guys who overperformed or underperformed the year before. Yeah, um, no, I think that that makes sense. Um, and it does. So, it does. I'm just looking at the ADP right now, and it, it does kind of look that way. Yeah, we uh, Yeah, okay. So th- that that was the point that um, you know, my big theory, you know, you wrote your article. Let's 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 lead into it by talking about your article. Um, who won your you know, people MFL 10s in 2017? 
This is an article you've written for a couple years now. Um, what were your big takeaways this year uh, from that article? Um, yeah, so the thing I look at when I do this um, is it's, uh, I mean, it's a good exercise to, for me just, uh, you know, to reflect on the past year, you know, what worked and what didn't. And uh, the thing I really focus on when I'm doing it is not who the actual players are. Like the fact that Todd Gurley is at the top and he's Todd Gurley and he plays for the Rams, like that's not really what I'm interested in. It's more that he's a running back who went in the late second round after, you know, XYZ players, right? And then – and I'm looking at where there's a high concentration or low concentration of players with with good win rates. Um, and, you know, whether that can tell me anything about, uh, you know, where I should focus next year. Uh, so I'm looking for these pockets of the draft where, you know, where these win rates live. Um, and, you know, it really – uh, you know, one thing I, I mentioned in the article is, uh, and we already touched on, was the diversification in the early rounds. I mean, you can see it in the win rates. Um, you know, Gurley and Bell had two of the highest win rates, but and they were early picks. But there were so many low, low win rate plays um, or picks in the first four rounds. That you know, because the the risk is just very the price is so high. You know, losing one of those guys or one of those guys underperforming is just so costly to your team. Um, you you know, one takeaway there for me is just don't put all your eggs in in one of those baskets. I mean, it's just it's too much. Um, yep. Yep. The, you know, I, go ahead. No, if you have another point, go ahead. Oh, no, yeah, um, if, um, I'll move on to something else, but um, what, what were you going to say? Well, what I was going to say is, you know, this is my first year really locking in and studying, and I did the best ball leaderboard article for Rotoviz during the year. So after like two weeks, I had them add the um, the win rates. So every week I was seeing how, you know, the leaderboard was based on giving points for how you finished each week. So it was more about consistency, right? How many mm-hmm. how many good, solid weeks are you adding? And what I noticed was when I think about win rates, I think about when you're drafted, who you're drafted against, right? So... In other words, like I think the two ways that you would get a high win rate, one would be because you are drafted at a great value, correct? You know, like Alvin Mm -hmm. Kamara in the 12th round, you know, uh, Hunt in the 11th round, you know, those kind of values. Um, The other thing that I thought would um, cause a high win rate would be, you know, a lot of people busting around a player. So if – you had, you know, like Russell Wilson was in the eighth round, and, you know, if there was a bunch of eighth-round busts and he was, a, you know, had a really good season, that's obviously going to push up his win rate. Wouldn't you agree? Yep, absolutely. The, but it wasn't explaining to me some of the anomalies I was seeing. So, for instance, based on that, 
Carson Wentz was one of the top two or three quarterbacks. So was Alex Smith. But they didn't have the win rate of Russell Wilson, who was drafted six rounds earlier, right? That didn't make any sense. That doesn't make any sense. Um, So in that instance, I came up with a theory, which is at the quarterback position, because it's such a flat, and, and, and Cam Newton was second, even though he was an eighth round pick ahead of mm-hmm. Wentz, who had a better, much better year than Newton. But what, so the theory I came up with at quarterback is because it's such a stable flat position, Newton and Wilson had, you know, a number of 30, 35 point weeks. That's what drives success at the quarterback position. So going forward, one of my strategies is going to be looking to take one very stable quarterback, you know, the guy who over the last couple of years always seems to put up, an, you know, a 15 to 20 point week and mixing him in with a guy like Newton who can go, or Wilson who can give you a five to eight point stinker one week, but give you 35 points the next. To me, it was those, big weeks that drove those winning percentages for Wilson and Newton thoughts on that, on, on my takeaway there. Uh, well, let's see. Yeah. I got a couple of thoughts on it. Well, um, one being, I agree with you. You want those big weeks. Um, they're important, but I, I think part of, so well, the, again, the before you go, Wilson, because of the quarterback position is so unique where it's, you know, it wouldn't work with running back, right? Because you can't have guys having horrible weeks because, or wide receiver because so many other wide receivers are volatile. But because right, your second right. quarterback tends to be so stable, and if he gives you an 18-point week when Russell Wilson gets five, that Russell Wilson five-point week didn't hurt you, but the next week when he puts up 35, it really helps you. I hope that made it clear. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I mean, that. yeah, I, I followed you there. But I think in the case of Russell Wilson, though, I mean, he really – he scored a lot more fantasy points than Alex Smith or Carson Wentz over the course of the year. Um, so I think that's a little bit of a different case. I mean, he was kind of far and away our, our QB1. Um, and then uh, Cam Newton – is a yeah that's a little more interesting i think um i think part of what it is is um teams or uh you know people who were drafting Wentz and um Alex Smith i mean not all the time but i bet a lot of the time these were three quarterback teams um i i i have to look into this but like i bet a lot of you know two quarterback teams or people who were drafting Russell Wilson we're probably stopping at two quarterbacks and that, um, you know, when it works, not having a, you know, used a third, a third spot on that position is going to help you win. Right. Like it, it, it's almost like you wasted a spot if you had Wentz and two other quarterbacks, because there wasn't that much confidence in a guy like Wentz or Alex Smith going into the year. That, that, that's a very good um, point. So, yeah, I, I bet, I mean, you know, again, I haven't looked into this, but uh, and I kind of just had this thought, but I bet a lot of teams with Wentz and Alex Smith had three quarterbacks, and they didn't need to, right, like in, you know, in retrospect. Um, right, so they used and, more draft equity. Right. 
and they, you know, they it, had they used the, you know, one of those picks on, uh, you know, a running back or wide receiver, maybe they would have been even more successful, right? Um, and I think that could be part of it. And but that doesn't, that also doesn't uh, negate what you're saying, right? Like, uh, maybe, well, and I, I got to jump in one sec and you know because you made a point about Russell Wilson he had 364 points to Wentz's 314 but during the best ball season but Wentz missed two weeks if you look at their points per game it was 2432 versus 2418 and Alex Smith was 2235 so really not a huge difference uh, um, I'm I don't. I, I mean, but he, the fact is, he did miss those two weeks. So I mean, you can't. You don't get like a mulligan uh, for those right. points. Right. So, but mean, Russell Wilson scoring that many more points over, and it, it's cute. You know, it's it's not a one week game, right? Like it doesn't matter if it was, um, you know, the the per game only being a couple of points versus Alex Smith, right? Well, there are there are sixteen games. Um, or Let me so just jump in one more, one more time, sorry. Because I was doing this best ball thing. At the time that uh, Wentz went down, Wilson had a 19-point to 13-point advantage over Wentz. And let me, let me find where they finished. Because Wilson had two horrible last weeks. If, uh, Wilson scored... 13 and 15 points the last two weeks. So, you know, he only put up right. 28 points those two weeks. Now, that uh, you know, did that help his win percentage? You know, his win percentage actually dropped from 19 to 16 the last two weeks, I think. Let me, let me confirm that. Yeah, Wilson dropped from 19 to 16 the last two weeks, and Wentz dropped – helps if you spell his name right, Todd – Wentz went from 13 to 11 the last two weeks. So that, right. I, 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 and I, and you had no way of knowing that. You weren't following it like I was on a weekly basis for that article. So I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm trying to get. I'm, I, I really want to get you the best information so you can really consider everything. Right. No, but uh, I mean the fact that Wilson didn't have a big last two weeks just means he was even further ahead of Wentz before those two games, right? Like, than you would have expected. It was, you know well, what like, uh, like, what is, what is, what, like, Russell Wilson's points per game excluding the last two weeks, if you, like, you look at only games that he and Wentz, you know, were both a part of, or weeks that well, he and Wentz both Wentz had, Wentz had more points per game. If you take out those two weeks, hold on, 365 minus 28. Uh, you're better at math than I am. I need Excel. Hold on. <laughs> 365 equals 365 minus 28, and then divide that by equals that divided by 14. Is it 14 or 13? It's 13 because there's a by. Well, Oh yeah, Wilson was averaging 25.9 um before his injury and Wentz was 24.18. Yeah. 
Yeah, again, it's not a huge difference, but it's you know no. it, it is a difference. Yeah, um, just something to consider. No, but I, yeah. Um, go go ahead. You were going to say something. No, I think yeah, I got sidetracked a little bit here. Um, circling back to the in terms of the the takeaways from the article, though. Um, the other thing. I say this on every single podcast I do, but I'm going to say it again. Defenses. Um, it's not even it's not even relevant to uh, people who are playing on draft, but uh, again, fourth fourth year in a row, top three defenses off the board, so an ADP, all have below average win rates. Just don't take a defense early, like anyone who's listening. Just don't do it. It's the stupidest thing. You Literally the stupidest thing you can do in a draft is to take a defense throw. Yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, you know, you're you're not like – you're not crippling your team or anything, but it's not – it's just not a positive expected value play. I mean, every year we're wrong about who the best defense is going to be. And, um, you know, the highest win rate – belong to literally the team with the latest ADP uh, this year, is the New Orleans Saints. Um, and, Weren't even and, drafted you know, so in, in yeah, probably they, they a third of the draft. About, oh, e- even less. Um, I, I actually, I, I, uh, I bent my um, 500 minimum rule and included them in the table because I wanted to have all the defenses, but they were only drafted in about 10% of leagues. Um, but you know, and but then the the other ones at the top, you know, the Ravens, the uh, the Rams, both um, you know, outside of the top ten, uh, the Jags made it in the um, as number ten in terms of ADP. They made it into the top four, but it, you know, every year I see this, the you, you just need to wait on defense. I I, mean, I recommend taking three of them because you don't know. Like, it's very hard to know who the best ones are going to be. Um, and it's easy to just wait and take three of them and get the same production that you would if you actually knew how to pick two of them. Um, and then and, and after defense, as I sort of said, my piece there, um, uh, the, the thing I – Can I say something about that, defenses uh, before you go to the next sure. point? Sure. I'm yeah. looking at it. Um the Denver Broncos had a 5% win rate. So if you drafted the Broncos at ADP of 147, you had a 5.4% chance of winning your best ball. I mean, just that one pick um, dropped you, what's an average, 8.5? Yeah, just under 8.5. Yeah, so, you know, it dropped you 3, 3%. Just by taking them, the Chiefs were 7.1, the Texans were 6.1, the Seahawks were 7.4, and even the Vikings, who had a very good defensive year for NFL, in NFL terms, were 6.7. And then, like you said, you get to the Jaguars a tenth, 12.4. So um, I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree with you more on not taking a defense. I'll take them sometimes in the 16th round depending on how everything goes, but uh, I'll, you'll never see me taking a defense before that. Yeah, and it's just, it's just, it's an easy thing to do right. You know, um, that's, that's And that's why part I of roster construction. It. Right, and, and, you know, it's, it, it's very easy to just say, 
um, you know, I'm I'm going to use my last three picks on a defense. You know, <laughs> problem solved. I'm going to pick up exactly before then. Like, it's not a, um, you know, it, it, there's nothing tricky about it, and uh, the numbers bear it out every year. Um, and your next point was. Yeah, so I was I was just going to jump to tight ends. Um, you know, you mentioned having uh, the, your guy Ertz. Um, he ended up with the the top win rate. But the thing about uh, that, that's interesting about that to me is not that it was Ertz or not even where he was drafted, but the fact that the top win rate is just 14.4% um, at the position. And, you know, a tight end, and, and this is true, um, this has been true the past several years, um, tight end just doesn't have a very wide distribution of win rates. So you don't have guys, um, you know, I think maybe three years ago, somebody had an 18% win rate, but typically it's like, um, you know, it, it kind of pops out. Um, yeah, that sounds right. Um, you know, it, the thing is, so it, it's a pretty narrow range though. There aren't a lot of guys who really kill you. I mean, Gronk kills you when he gets injured because he's a first round pick, but um, you know, the, Mostly they're hovering around the average, kind of a tight distribution. So I don't like to really go overweight on any one tight end because the fact is almost no tight ends really tilt your portfolio, like are really going to make you have a winning year. But any tight end can get injured. You know, like nobody's immune to injuries. Uh, so I just don't like to make big bets there. I'll spread it out. Um you know, across a, I, I don't have a particular part of the draft really where I like to focus, you know, um, I try to balance in terms of like, if I'm taking them early, I'll, you know, only take two, like I mentioned earlier, but um, it's really, I don't want to have a lot of concentration in any of them in particular. I'll, I'll have guys I like more than others. Like I think I had more Rudolph this year than, uh, than most guys, but um, I still didn't have a lot of them. You know, it's, you want to spread it out. You don't want to take on a lot of risk there unnecessarily because the payoff just isn't there. Um, that that was my real takeaway at that position. Yeah, I I agree with that. And, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> that kind of ties into my other big takeaway from this win rate thing is at least for the last two years, the third factor that really seems to affect win rate you know, the guys who had the huge win rates the last, like, it doesn't make sense that Todd Gurley would have that much better of a win rate than, say, an Alvin Kamara, because Kamara was drafted so much later than Gurley, right? You would think, wow, if you, mm-hmm. you know, Kamara would have a higher win rate than Gurley because he was drafted so much later. Um, what I found over the last two years is that when you I call it supercharging. What happened two years ago was David Johnson had that huge win rate, but the way the draft fell at ADP, a lot of times you were able to get David Johnson with Zeke Elliott or Le'Veon Bell after his suspension, and it was that combo I think that supercharged David Johnson's win rate. Same thing this year. It didn't make sense to me. I mean, we all know Lev Bell had a better season than Melvin Gordon. He scored about five more points a game. 
But to me, that didn't explain the difference between a 22% win rate and a 7% win rate, right? You know, they were drafted four picks Mm -hmm. apart. Five points a game really shouldn't give you a 15-point spread. But if you drafted Gordon in the eighth, ninth, tenth pick, a lot of times you were coming back with a Jai, Jordan Howard, um, Amari Cooper, guys who really bombed, where if you took Antonio Brown or Lev Bell at three or four, that put you in perfect position to take Gurley and or Hopkins. And it was, the, again, that combination of, of the two guys crushing it together in the first round that really, to me, is what supercharged that. Uh, those win- That's when you see those those ceilings of those first and second round guys just blow the late round great values like Kamara out of the water. Yeah. So I actually, uh, you know, I, I heard you mention this on um, your last podcast with, uh, with Mike Marr. And so I looked into it and uh, I was curious. Um, and I found um, that, yeah, cause it made sense to me. Um, and uh, what I found was Le- teams with Le'Veon Bell that won, they only had Gurley on their roster um, just uh, just under 30% of the time, which was uh, how often all teams that won had Gurley. I mean, his, his win rate was 31%, so it was just about the same. And likewise, you know, teams with Gurley only had uh, Bell about 22% of the time, and his win rate was 24 so it actually w- wasn't any different, which I thought was uh, kind of interesting. Um, that is interesting. What, like, like I, I think different. there's more to it, though, because, again, it's a 1 in 12 chance to win. Even if, let's say, you know, Gurley would have had – he had a great year, right? I mean, he would have given you – like, let's look at the – go back to the tight end and the quarterback. Those guys tend to have 15 to 18. They top out around there, correct? Uh, yeah. yeah. All right. So let's call that the baseline, 15 to 18%. Um, so even if it's adding 6 or 7%, because if, let's face it, if you had both of them in, in, in 20% of – Let's say you had Gurley in 30% of your drafts, and, you know, that means you had Bell in nine drafts. You probably won eight or nine of those leagues. Wait, I didn't follow you there. So say you had Gurley My point is that, yeah, having him in 30% isn't much different. Maybe it's a little different. But the point is, when they're paired together, they win. Because they were, you know, it was the first-round pick where, you know, like a lot of people nearby had Odell Beckham, who got hurt, or Julio Jones, who didn't have a terrible year but underperformed. I'm just saying it adds – it's when you – it's when, you know, like I think Gurley would have had a 20 22% win rate. But by getting – him in that same range, it, it gets you that extra eight to ten percent because if you get those guys who do so well, and th- that doesn't even include Hopkins, who was 
you know, like if I look at just pure ADP, yeah, David Johnson. So Bell was two nine, and Gurley was twenty point six nine, and Hopkins was twenty three point five six. They were in that range together. It's interesting that they didn't end up on more drafts together, though. Right. And when they did, I also looked at that, uh, there was a 57% win rate if you had both Bell and Gurley. Um, so it did, it did supercharge it. it. And did you check with Hopkins? Uh, I didn't look into Hopkins. Um, so I didn't quite have time to do that. But one thing I want to point out, though, is um, teams with Gurley without Bell still had a 27% win rate, which is obscenely high. Um you know, Antonio but there's Brown that extra four or five percent. Draft. What? Yeah. Go, yeah. Go um, ahead. So, I, you know, I think what more so than, I mean, I think it certainly helps that they were both like at that same sort of corner of the draft, but it's really about the best player in the round. I think is the bigger driver. Like the, like Gurley was far and away better than, almost, well, certainly any running back being taken sort of close to him. And most players, I mean, Hopkins was there. So, um, though, you know, only part of the year where they sort of near each other in, um, in ADP. And um, and then Bell was, uh, you know, clearly the best running back pick in his round. And, um, you know, there were, there were busts on either side of him. I, I I don't know. But Brown, I, I think... but Brown also, and again, look, I think you, that's a great point, but it's not just about Bell and Gurley. It's that Bell and Brown were the most, the, the two highest first-round picks, and they put you in position to get Gurley. Right. So, yeah, I, I, I'm just, I, I'm I would sure. love... I, I would love for you to do some more on that because I think it's a it's an interesting concept, and I do think what you're saying, if I understand you correctly, is the fact that Gurley was such a big win when everyone else, like looking at the the five players drafted right before Gurley at ADP, Des Bryant underperformed, Demarco Murray underperformed, Amari Cooper underperformed, T. Y. Hilton underperformed. Jay Ajayi underperformed, and Jordan right. Howard was okay. So, and then right after Gurley, Gronk was okay, and I mean he was good. And then Baldwin underperformed, and then Hopkins and Fournette. So, I, I do think if the point you're making is that there were so many other busts that that's that's what gave Gurley his biggest. I think that does make sense. Right. Yeah, because essentially, you know, if you were the guy with Gurley, you were not only the guy with the great running back, you were not the guy with the bad pick that, uh, right. you know, that happened. And there was right a very good that. chance you had either Bell or Brown as well. Right. Though, uh, uh, the counterpoint, there was an equally good chance that you had David Johnson or Odell Beckham. Boom. But, again, in an MFL 10 – you only need to win, you know, tw- if you win 20%, you're doing great. So, no. No, that, absolutely, that, that, yeah. 
so it, it, I think all these factors are something that, you know, can be studied more. But I do think that there's some correlation between who you tie your first round pick to in the second round. And I think the bigger point is that both Gurley and Hopkins were first round picks the year before who underperformed. And that's something that I think might be actionable. You know, those really good guys, back to my point about in the second round, you have people who over and underperform. You know, these guys who were first round picks like Mike Evans this year or early, you know, let go, let, just take a couple of the names off that list I just gave you. You know, T.Y. Hilton, Amari Cooper, you know, DeMarco Murray, well, he's older, but some of those guys who failed as second round picks are going to be late third, fourth round picks next year. And that their talent didn't go away. That's a durable right. asset. But, you know, the team either had a bad year or, in Tilton's case, Andrew Luck got hurt. Um, and so I do think that that is actionable, you know, to look for the guys who underperformed the year before, to review why they failed. It's kind of the opposite of our, our, our DeMarco Murray thing the year before where everything went right. You also want to look right. at what went wrong and see, you know, well, what's the chances that that's all that bad stuff? You know, what's the chance that luck is out the whole year? You know, what's the chance that, uh, you know, that Cooper plays as bad as he did this year? I, I do think it offers opportunity. And, and um, so you just reminded me of uh, something I wanted to ask you about. How where do you think, for one, where do you think he'll be drafted, and how do you feel about, and I think, uh, another point, I think a huge, like, crazy amount of this answer depends on how the Super Bowl goes. Jay Ajayi is going to be, where do you think he's going to be drafted next year, or this year, whatever you want to call it, and where should he be drafted? Well, again, is you know, is LeGarrette Blunt back, and is Clement back. My guess is right now you're going to look at Ajayi in the fourth or fifth round. And I would say... Yeah, I think that's going to be... Yeah, go ahead. I would guess, you know, if you had, you know, again, without having done any drafts or, or, you know, who should be where, you know, I I think that in my head he's, you know, for value, I would start considering him in the late fourth round. And because I, you know, the coaching staff tend, you know, yeah, they they played Ajayi, but they really kept him in that 15 range, and they gave Blount the the goal line, and they and they had Clement on third down. I don't know that those factors are going to change now. If you tell me Blount isn't back, I'll bump that up around, uh, maybe around and a half. What what are your thoughts? Well, so tell me what what how if at all would your thoughts on that change if the Super Bowl came, you know, regardless of who wins and Ajayi had, gets 20 carries to to blunts 7 and goes for over 100 yards. It would change for me, it would change very little because I've been doing this a long time and I don't let one game tend to you know, you know, my value meter isn't just based on, you know, I would hope, 
I would hope that the last thing I I saw didn't cause me to to put a bad value on a player. I would. But what it will do is cause everybody else to bump him up. His ADP will certainly be higher if that happens, right? I mean, right. I, I think at least like an, an entire round, if not more, higher if that scenario plays out. So it's just a right. very interesting um, case for me. I was just trying to get your thoughts oh, on hey, it because I, I haven't really figured I, it out. I grew up when, you know, I, I was in my 20s when uh, a guy named Timmy Smith ran for 200 yards in the 1980, after the 1987 season in the Super Bowl, won the MVP, and was never heard from again. If we had fantasy <laughs> football back then, where do you think Timmy Smith would have been drafted, right? Yeah, so, I know. You know, uh, uh, you know, my my guess is, but that's the fun of this. The fun of this is to try and take advantage of people's over enthusiasm or under enthusiasm. Right. Let's go the other way. A Jai, you know, a Jai fumbles on the first two series. Blount gets 19 carries and gets two touchdowns and 100 yards, and all three of them are back next year. You know, Ajayi might drop to the sixth round, um, and and then I, I because I, I again I would then say, that, you know, that was an anomaly. I think that you know they're going to want to give Jay Ajayi 15 to 18 carries a game, Blount seven carries in the goal line. So my my feeling of where Ajayi's value wouldn't change either way, but people's perception would change tremendously, and that's what you're looking for when you're drafting. Yeah, so I mean, for the selfish, well, I, I well, for you know, I'm a Steelers fan, and I'm I'm definitely be rooting against the Patriots, but I don't want Ajayi to have a good game um, because I want to draft him next year. Um, I want him to be in that fourth and fifth round, and I want him, I want to buy him, I, uh, and he'll probably be my Spencer Ware next year. But um, I just think he. Uh, you know that this is a good team. I mean, they've made the Super Bowl and proved it, and um, and this is a guy who's run for over 200 yards more than once in a season. Uh, he's got talent, um, and it, you know, it just needs the ball a little bit more. I feel like they've been working him in, so I'm probably I'm I'm probably gonna buy it. I'm gonna buy into it. Um, I was buying him this year on Miami. Unfortunately. Oh, I had I, but, I uh, had I had way too much. Jay Ajayi was probably my biggest bust. He was a top ten guy for me, and it didn't yeah. work out. But uh, you know, uh, I'll give you a name of someone. Let me find him. Oh gosh, what's uh, I can't think of his name now. What's the backup running back for Houston? Blue. He was a rookie out of Texas. Oh, uh, oh, Form, um, Donta Foreman. Foreman, Donta Foreman. All right, let me find him. So where uh, Ellington scored eighty-seven? I wonder how many points he even scored. Okay, so Donta Foreman only scored fifty-seven fantasy points, but the last week before, you know, the last week before he got hurt, he had twenty-three fantasy points. And he showed a decent amount a couple games last year. Lamar Miller has disappointed a couple years in a row. We all know that a lot of times when there's a, a stable running back there, people don't trust the guy his first year. That's a guy that I'm I'm kind of focusing in on. 
I, I saw enough out of him to be to think that he's the best running back on that team uh, next year, and 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 that's a guy that I think, you know, I, Lamar Miller. If, if they're both still there, Miller will probably be going in the fifth, sixth round, maybe. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah sounds about right. I mean, he what, where was he? He was beginning of the third round this year, and he really disappointed. Uh, yeah. yeah. If he, and if I, I think there, Foreman will be the, going the in the starter. That, yeah, fifth or sixth sounds right. Yeah, I think he is. A, he's someone that I'm very interested in. Um, <clears throat> when I do draft late running backs, I'm either if I'm doing a zero running back thing, I'm looking for pass catching backs. But if I if I'm happy with my running backs and I, I'm not looking for you know I'm looking to hit a home run. I like looking for, you know, two years ago if you if you got Jordan Howard. Um, you know, I think that Foreman has that kind of Jordan Howard ability to, you know, he'll he'll be he'll be you know, he'll be a, 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 the second back, but he's got a chance to beat out Miller, I think, next year. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Um, I, I don't oh. think Miller's anything special, you know. Like I, he's a, he's a, he's actually I didn't mention him, but he's a miss for me this year. Uh, I was buying him on the, you know, just sort of the volume and opportunity alone. But uh, yeah, I don't think he's a special talent. I think that uh, Foreman can absolutely take his job. Yeah, that that whole second and third round was very tough this year. It was very tough. There was a lot of guys with a lot of questions. It'll be interesting to see um, how everything shakes out. Mike, stellar job. Anything, any final thoughts before we move on? Any questions you have for me? Um, we're, uh, we're getting close to uh, the end of our time. I don't mind doing longer pods, but I want to give you a chance to finish up with any final thoughts. Um. Well, I guess anyone listening, look out for um, – I'll have uh, win rates on roster construction coming out on Rotoviz pretty soon. But uh, most of all, I want to say congrats to you, Todd, on uh, on a great year. Um, your uh, your ROI uh, certainly bested mine in terms of the, the normal leagues, and uh, it's very impressive. Uh, you put in the well, work and you got it done. So. I appreciate that, man. And uh, in the immortal words of Bill Belichick, we're on to 2018. You know, I, I would love to, you know, to, to bask in my greatness, but, uh, you know, that's a surefire way to get yourself clobbered next year. <laughs> well, but yeah. that's very nice uh, of you to say. Thank you. And, and again, congrats on the pros versus Joe thing. Mike Beers, everyone, one of the smartest guys in this hobby. Uh, if you're not buying Rotoviz, the Rotoviz Pass is a steal every year, and I couldn't recommend it more before I started writing for them. Uh, I definitely had it. Wouldn't go an NFL season without it. Um, did we cover everything, Mike? Uh, we covered enough, I think. <laughs> well, no, this was, I, I this like was a great conversation. Uh, we hit a lot of bases, so. Um, yep. no, it's always ha, a we'll have you on if you think of some other things if you want to come back I, I want to you know I, I think all this stuff is very edifying and the goal is to take our winnings higher and higher 
So I'm going to lead out with that song, Mike Beers, everyone. Find him at Beers Water. Good night, everyone. Thanks, bud. And face the world Let me 